0: And I do have to admit that uh, the second section of Luke has been a challenge to try to wrap my mind around what the focus is. <clears throat> there seems to be a lot of pointing to the Jews and the Israelites and saying, you guys aren't doing what's right, you guys are in bad shape. It doesn't seem to me that that message would just be repeated over and over and over again. It seems like there's got to be some distinction between the different passages. And it's been a challenge. This particular section of Luke that we're in began in chapter 13 and verse 22, and it began with a question. Lord, uh, let's see, it's in verse uh, 23 of chapter 13. Lord, are there are only a few that will be saved. And that comes on the heels of the, as the last section closed, he described how Israel, using parable, he described how Israel had been, it had become corrupt. They were not uh, the same as what they were when they began. They were now like three measures of meal that was full of leaven, the false doctrines of the Pharisees. And so Sonata's question, so then is there only a few that are saved? And the Lord doesn't immediately answer yes or no. He says, you know, you need to strive to enter the narrow gate. And he's speaking of entering the, uh, the kingdom of God, the coming kingdom of God, because he says this, you need to strive to enter because many will stand outside and they will see Abraham and the fathers and the prophets inside feasting in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out so the answer is there will be few saved but the lord answers it in such a way to make the 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 person the people who hear this parable to Uh, It's not just a yes or no, but it's a, you need to take a close look at yourself. It's not, he doesn't say, yes, there will be just a few saved, which leaves the listener the opportunity to say then, well, those poor people who won't be saved, I'm surely one of the ones that will be in there. No, he doesn't allow you that. He told these people, you need to really put forward some effort to make sure that you enter in because there's going to be a whole pile of you that are going to be standing around on the outside. And just in case they didn't catch who he was talking about when he said they would be on the outside, Luke continues on and he, he puts in a little detail. I don't think any of the other, I'm not sure if the other gospel writers put this one in, but in verse 31, the Pharisees come to him and they say, Hey, Herod's trying to kill you. You need to watch your step. He throws it in there on the heels of this conversation here where Jesus says that many will be on the outside. Yes, Herod will be on the outside for sure, trying to kill Jesus. My goodness, that man, wicked king that he is, killing his wife and his kids and the babies were around Bethlehem, or at least he was the son of the, you know, that whole lineage. That Herod, he will be on the outside, gnashing his teeth. Good for him. Not bad for him, but good. But Jesus says, no, you tell that fox, look, I I got a couple of days here yet before I I will be perfected, he says. Before I will go to that death assigned to me by my father. But I have to go, not running from Herod, but I have to go to Jerusalem. Because that's where the prophets die, is in Jerusalem. And then he mourns over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, I would have gathered you. I want you. This is... I don't have to worry about offending anybody. <laughs> Since this is where you see, I mean, this verse here to me contradicts the whole idea that God decides who gets saved and who doesn't get saved. I mean, it's right here. He says in, chap- in verse 34 of chapter 13, he says, how often I wanted to gather your children together, but you were not willing I mean, if that doesn't talk about people going against the will of God, I don't know what verse was. It does. He wanted to save them. I wanted to bring you in. But you are going to find yourself outside. Abraham and his children will be there. You'll be on the outside. It's you, Jerusalem. It's the the place where God set his name, where the temple is at, where he's promised to be forever. That is the place that needs to strive to enter in through the narrow gate. Shocking, because that's where the temple's at. That's where all the godly Jews went, was to Jerusalem. How is it that Jerusalem would be on the outside? Truly, there are only a few saved, if Jerusalem herself would be on the outside. So suppose some people took his message seriously and they said, okay, so we must strive. What do we need to do? Do we need to keep the law more perfectly? Do we need to be more careful about how we keep the Sabbath? Is that the kind of striving, to make sure that we get our our I's dotted and our T's crossed? Exactly right. And Luke writes about this sabbath how he went to the pharisees house on the sabbath and they they were eyeing him because they saw there was a man there who had an ailment and uh, they wanted to know was jesus going to heal on the sabbath is it a matter of keeping the sabbath more perfect perfectly and he shows them in all of your efforts to keep the sabbath that's that's not it which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit, shall not immediately pull him out, of the sa- pull him out on the Sabbath day? I mean, that's what you do when you've got an animal trapped. And I, and I shared that story when that little goat was stuck between the hay and the wall and stuff. And you do it. You, you get the, the thing out, even though you could care less about him. That's just what you do. Which would compromise the Sabbath day if you did that on a Sabbath you know, it's not about keeping the law more perfectly. That's not the striving that needs to be done. In contrast to that, then, he, and Luke ties these thoughts together. I mean, he uses a conjunction word here. He says, so, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the best places, saying to them, so we continue on in the story. And he tells <laughs> that parable of people being invited to a wedding feast. And you have to, and, you, and it's such a, a beautiful illustration because, there's nothing like walking into a wedding reception and there is one particular table that's the head table it's it's reserved for the bride and the groom and the maids of honor and the men of whatever grooms whatever the other guys the guys that are upstanding with them it's reserved for them and then there's another table near that head table and that's reserved for the parents and the grandparents of the bride and groom so you sit Near the head table, based on how close you are to them, what, what kind of friendship you have. And so you, you evaluate, now where do I sit in this particular feast? Am I a really close friend? where I sit up front? Or will the groom come in and he'll say to me, dude, I mean, I appreciate you coming to the wedding, but I can't have my buddy sitting way back over there. Can you, I need them up here. Do you mind? Uh, what, by then, the only seat is like out in the hallway. And so with shame, you kind of move down and you take the lower place. You you guessed wrong. You thought you were supposed to be so good. He said, don't be picking the, trying to figure out which is the best table. You need to sit in the lower table because then you'll be honored when he brings you up. Well, imagine that the feast was at the temple and you have God in the temple and you've got that head table of honor right outside the door of the temple and then all the other tables in the courtyard of the temple Where do you pick your seat? How close do you get towards God? Where do you put yourself at? Now, what would motivate a person to take the seat in the table the farthest from the door to temple? Why would you do that? Well, if you saw yourself as somebody who was a sinner and somebody that didn't have it all together and you didn't deserve to be at the feast, then you would sit in that farthest table. And Jesus recommends that you do that. You sit in that farthest table. So he's telling them to strive to see yourself for who you are. That you are you are a sinner. You don't deserve to be brought into the kingdom of God. That you are, that you, your, your place is outside the gate. That's where you belong. Strive to see that because that's the reality. Whoever exalts himself and says, "Well, I did really good, keeping the Sabbath, this, that, and the other thing," they will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself and says, "Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner," they will be exalted. So that's the kind of striving that He's exhorting them to do, which is one that they needed because because of their their confidence and their own ability to keep the law. They they felt that they were they were Jews, you know, they were circumcised on the eighth day. They they were of this tribe and that tribe, and they were Hebrew the Hebrews, and they kept the law and everything, and they lived in Jerusalem. I mean, they were, if anybody was should sit close to God in the in the feast of the kingdom of God, it should be these Jews in Jerusalem, of which they were one. And he said, No matter, you need to recognize that you are humbled, you are lowed, you're not as high as you think you are. So, he <clears throat> so as he talks about these things and, and eating the feasts and in the presence of God and this, that, and everything, and it says in verse 15 of chapter 14, I think this is where we left off last time. When one of those who sat at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. This man was sitting here listening to Jesus and he was taken up with the, He was seeing what Jesus was talking about. You know, that Being in the kingdom of God, boy, that would be a good thing. And to be able to sit at the table there in the presence of God. I mean, the table, whew, what a blessing. That would be honor. That would be amazing to sit and eat in the kingdom of God. And yes, it would be. And he said to him in verse 16, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many. And he sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. Soup's on. But they, with all, with, they all, with one accord, began to make excuses. And the first said to him, Well, uh, <clears throat> I've I bought a piece of ground, and I, I must go see it. I asked you to, to have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. And I'm going to test them. Um, I ask you to have me excused. And still another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I can't come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master, and then the master of the house, being angry, said to the servant, Go off quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city. Bring in there the poor, the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. The master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges. Compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. It was quite the parable, the story for Jesus to tell after that man said, Blessed is the man who will be eating in the kingdom of God. The story of a man who gives a supper and And he sends out the invite to the people who you would expect to be there at that supper, his friends and whatever else, and they begin to make these excuses and they're not going to show up. What does that have to do with eating at that table in the kingdom of God? Is God setting a big supper and he's going to send out an invitation and people are going to make excuses and not show up? And so then does God... When, they, when he finds that his invitation has been rejected, does he send out servants to collect the, the outcasts of society and bring them in for his supper? I mean, is that what he's talking about? It's pretty simple to interpret the parable. I mean, it can only really mean one thing. Got, we're talking about the feast in the kingdom of God, and then we've got a feast here in a story, and the people are invited. They didn't come. We had these different excuses. That's crazy. Who would who would reject God's invitation to come in and eat that feast, eat that feast in the in the kingdom of God? You well, know, you think about these people and what it was that motivated them to reject the invitation. Why did they why did they say, ah, you know, maybe I'll catch the next supper. This one here, I'm busy right now. Well, the first one had bought a piece of ground. He had Land. And he said, Well, I could go to a supper or I could see my land. And he says, You know, this, this land is, has more value to me than the opportunity to eat at the supper. And the other one says the same thing I've got, I've obtained five yoke of oxen, and that, that they have more value to me. Than the opportunity to eat at the supper, and the other one says, "Well, I've married a wife, and the time with her is of more value to me than to eat at the supper." And so they all have got these things that uh, they they say, "Because I have these things, I don't I don't really need your supper. I don't this. I have something else." That is as good as the invitation, or even better. And I'm going to pass at this time. <clears throat> they are contrasted with the the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. Can you imagine these people uh, sitting in their little? Can you imagine? Okay, so let, let's let's take this then. We got the we got the servant, and he goes out and he stops at the first little shack or house or whatever. He sees the first poor person, and he says, Hey, I've got an invitation for a big feast. You know that big mansion up there on the hilltop? He wants you to come and eat a rich man's feast. And that person's like, Oh, oh, oh. He says, Well, wow. I, You don't understand. If I've just found the perfect place to put my cardboard box for begging. I mean, this is a key spot of real estate. And, and if I sit here, I get coins, and a and, oh, poor person doesn't care about that little spot on the street with his cardboard box. He's like, really? To eat a real feast with a real rich man in a real rich man's house? Man, ain't nobody gets an opportunity like that, and off he goes. Or somebody else, I, I have to leave my cockroaches? i got five yoke of cockroaches? I can't give up my cockroaches. No, he doesn't care about his cockroaches. That feast is like, how, when do you ever get an opportunity like that? So the poor people was like, I can't believe that he would give me an invitation to come and eat at his feast. And they would go. Is it possible then that people have something else in their life that has more value to them than an invitation to the feast in the kingdom of God? It's like the Lord is saying it is possible, and given the context, He must be talking to the Pharisees and the the. Uh, the upper the ups of the Jerusalem, I mean, all the high ups of the Jews, these these people that are pious, these people that are uh, faithful in keeping the law, and they're there at every one of the Levitical d- the feasts, and they're faithful in bringing their sacrifices and making their vows and all the rest of stuff. I mean, these people, it's not these people are ones who are who uh, th- th- their whole life is centered around. God and all the rituals of the temple and the sacrifices and everything else. I mean, that's what they do. They wouldn't dream of skipping out on a synagogue service. How is it that these people would reject any kind of invitation that would come from God? Now, so it says in verse 25, many, it said, great multitudes went with him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me, he cannot be his, he cannot be my disciple. These are hard verses you want to be a disciple of the Lord, you've got to be willing to take up your cross. And we you know what a cross means, that means getting nails through your hands and your feet and hanging there for a while until you pretty much die. Be willing to give up the comfort of home with father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and just abandon all of that, of course. For some people it's easier to abandon that kind of a home than other people. But... The idea is, you know, these people in Jerusalem, they were talking about, these are all morally upright people, and they all come from good families and so forth, so to abandon that and just go follow him to be his disciple, that's a lot to ask. Really, we have to do that in order to be a disciple? But he continues on. He says, verse 28, For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who, be, who see it begin to mock him. So it's a simple little story. You got some guy, he's like, I'm Wanna build a tower? And so he's like, That's a, that's an awesome idea, build a tower. So he goes to the and he starts buying concrete so that he can and, and wood so that he can build the forms and kind of pour out his foundation, and he starts uh, he, he, he buys the forms, he's like, wow, that was kind of expensive, and he buys the concrete and gets people, and he pays people to pour the concrete, and he's like, boy, that's expensive too, and I got to put rebar in there too. It's <laughs> really starting to add up. He gets the foundation, gets the forms ripped off, and he gets the backfill in there, and he goes to buy the, uh, uh, the ICS, or ICI, whatever, all the different walls and everything, and it's like, oh boy, that stuff's expensive. I gotta, I'm going to have to save up a little bit before I can go ahead and build the rest of this place. And so gets this nice foundation ready and backfilled, but then nothing else happens. And people go by and they're like, Well, in the world, nice foundation, but when are you gonna build the house? He's like, Well, <laughs> I actually found out I can't afford it, I gotta save up a little bit. And they begin to laugh and chuckle, like, you went and tried to build this thing and didn't count the cost ahead of time. So now you got this hole dug in the ground with your foundation, you can't put that. <laughs> That's the story he tells. And then he tells another story. What king going to make a war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still greatly off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions for peace. So, you got a king, and he hears news that there's another king that's going to march against him. He's got a big army. So, he looks at his army, he counts his men up, and he finds out he has 10,000 men. He looks over the other side of the hill, and it's like, that guy's got twice as many guys as I've got. It's going to be a rough battle. So what, King doesn't sit there and kind of evaluate the situation and say, I haven't got a chance. And so he'd send messengers off and say, hey, what will it take for you to not come and whoop up on me? I mean, what are you you looking for? You want some land? You want some sheep? uh, Maybe a couple bundles of wheat? Try to find out what the conditions of peace are. And so Jesus says, so likewise... Whoever view you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is a, what do you, I mean, you got a guy that's building a tower, counts the cost. And uh, I mean, why would many people build towers, anyhow? This isn't a house, it's not a barn, not a shed, it's a tower. And one thing about towers in the Old Testament. You built these big towers of stone and made them strong. And the idea was that if you had some robbers or somebody that comes along and they threaten your lives, you run into that tower and you bolt the door shut and it keeps them guys from getting at you. And so there's even a psalm that refers to it that the Lord's name is like a strong tower, the righteous run into it and are safe. And there's a few stories in the Old Testament where people would go inside a tower and be safe from the swords and the the little uh, gorillas that were coming against them. And they would fight them from the inside. And there was one story of Abimelech, as he's trying to knock down this tower, and this woman drops a millstone (laughs) on top of his head, and that kind of put his shenanigans to him. So towers were for a place of refuge, defense. And in the king, we're talking about war, and he's looking at, he's got, he's got, another king coming against him so he's like well i need to defend my land defend my property defend myself but i don't have the resources to defend myself the first guy is trying to build a tower a place of refuge and he didn't count the cost to see whether he could build a tower strong enough to defend himself to keep himself safe These people in Jerusalem, with all their care to keep the feasts and to offer their sacrifices and the vows and to keep the Sabbath and so forth, weren't they building for themselves a tower that they could rest inside that would keep them safe from the judgment that was to come? That if they could build up their righteousness and make it strong enough and thick enough. Then when the judgment of God came and started and people were having to answer before God, they could offer up their righteousness and it would provide for them a protection against the wrath of God. It's not that far-fetched because atonement has the idea that it is a shield a protection against the wrath of God that comes crashing over land. It's land. It provides a covering for you So that until the wrath of God is is appeased. Well, what if you got a a man and he's got he's been building up all of his uh, credentials, so that he is he's a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he's faithful in keeping the law, and he's all these other he's got all these things built up, so that when the judgment comes into the land and the king comes and there's death and go up spreading across the land that he could defend himself and say, no, I, I you shouldn't kill me. I'm, I'm, I've got my security in place. Jesus says, wouldn't you count the cost? Can you build a tower that will defend you, defend you against the?" the wrath of God for your sin can you raise an army great enough to deliver you against the wrath of God for your sin unless you forsake all that you have and all that you depend on you can't be my disciple so Paul got this and in Philippians 2 he writes about forsaking all that he has Where is Philippians 3, actually? Now notice how Paul, he's willing to take up his cross, like Jesus talked about. He says in uh, Philippians 3, verse 3, uh, I mean verse 4, he says, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, of the Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, of persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. I had all these things there. It was a tower, a refuge, a place of security for me to to be uh, to escape the judgment of God. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yes, indeed, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Paul said, Look, I counted the cost, and no, I can't build a tower, so that it's rubbish. I'm gonna grab onto Christ and Him alone. I want to be found in him not having my own righteousness which is from the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which is from God by faith that I may know him the power of his resurrection the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death I want to die to whatever I can possibly do I want I want to take up the cross I want to, I want to be found in him if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead I Paul was one of those who, he didn't, he, he, had, he had spent time where he had found security, his father and his mother, his wife and his children, brothers and sisters in his own life. So he, he, he found security in what everyone else was doing and doing better than everyone else. And he forsook he all that he had. To be the Lord's disciple, so the Lord, and said, the Lord is saying, "You guys have built up for yourselves your own place of refuge, your own righteousness, your own security. That was not the purpose of the law. When the law first came to you under Moses, Moses understood that." It was God's mercy to take you as his people. Now you think that you have earned the right to be God's people. That, he, that because of your own personal righteousness, God will be your God. That's not how it works. So he says in verse 34, salt is good. But if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is either fit for land or for the dunghill. Men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Salt. Israel was intended to be the salt of the earth, and when they, and the, and what that meant, as God told them, He said, "Look, you guys, I'm giving you my laws, my statutes, and my commandments." and everybody around you will look at you and say, where did these people get this wisdom that they have such incredible, just, and perfect laws? Well, he says, I want the world to see the, the how do you say it, the, the great goodness of the commands that I give you and that you follow after them, and that righteousness in your government over you will, that other people will pick up on these concepts and see that, you know, it's good to have righteous laws. We shouldn't be just making laws to make the rich become richer and the poor become poor, but have righteous laws that that treat everybody equally. The rich are judged with the same justice that the poor are judged with. And so justice does not depend on how much money you have, but it's it's given to everybody. That's what he wanted. That's the, They were, this concept of fair and true justice was to go out into the world because Israel was to practice that. And the concept of mercy under law, that when somebody breaks the law that there is an opportunity for mercy through the sacrifices and through, there was different... Things in the law that God gave them. So that, to get that balance between justice and yet mercy and how to make that all work. Salt is good, but if that salt, if that, you know, being under the law and under the commands of God is good, but if being under the commands of God and trying to obey the commands of God, if it loses the, the flavor, Being under the commands in the beginning of God, there was, as David would write, oh, God, have mercy on me! I have followed you, and I, I, have uh, reached. I, I have made you, you are my God, and I trust in you." And yet, there's that sense of looking to God for mercy, because what what obligation does God have to take care of David? And David recognized that, that it was the mercy and the kindness of God. What a beautiful flavor to being under the rule of God. But if you lose that flavor and it becomes just a, a method and an opportunity to build up one's righteousness, that's... So you've got a people who say, we've arrived... Don't know what your problem is. You need to work a little harder to keep the Sabbath. There's no good flavor to that mentality. So if being under the law of God has lost that flavor of the mercy and the goodness of God, how do you fix it? The system that the Jews had developed of their religiousness and their legalism, it is fit for neither land nor even a pile of poop. Men throw it out, and that has been what—that is what has happened. Men threw out the Jews and trampled them underfoot, and have been doing it for, for near two thousand years you are in danger the lord told these righteous people of jerusalem you are in such grave danger and yet all you do is keep on trying to build up your own righteousness you need to count the cost and realize you can't do it count it loss and get rid of it and then you can be my disciple so then all the, it says in chapter 15, all the tax collectors and the sinners, they drew near to him to hear him. Boy, you see the contrast here. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Well, <laughs> this isn't the, the uh, fulfillment of the illustration of that supper that we just read about, just thought about. He sent out the invitation and the scribes and Pharisees, they won't come and eat of that beast of a humble and contrite heart in the mercy of God. The tax collectors, the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind, they come. They want... what What do tax collectors and sinners have that they can offer up as some kind of security against the judgment of God? They have nothing and they know it. And he speaks these words of being delivered from the judgment of God and finding mercy. For they came to hear him. This was a feast. And the Pharisees and the scribes are like, look at this guy, he sits there and talks to sinners. He eats with them. (laughs) Luke brings in that concept of feast. He eats with them. Really, Pharisees and scribes, you think when you go and offer up your peace offering and you eat before God that God isn't eaten with sinners then too? What are you trying to say here? You've, you've got something here that makes you okay at you So he spoke this parable to them, saying, "What man of you having a hundred sheep if he loves one of them loves sorry, if he loses one of them." He does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. He tells a little story. This guy's got a hundred sheep. And one of them gets lost. Just one. Not 10% or 50% or 90%. Just one of them is lost. And he says, which man of you would not go after that one? I mean, this, they understood this. You lose one, you're going to go try to find it. Now the thing about a sheep, when it gets lost, It's the way a sheep gets lost is that as it is eating its grass or whatever, it goes over to the next patch of grass, the next patch, the next patch, the next patch, the next patch. And it just keeps on going from place to place. And it never knows it's lost. It just keeps going. As long as it's got grass, it's happy. You know what? I've noticed that a lot of people, when they tell the story, they they get into the... Uh, the the drama of the danger that the sheep find itself in and usually the picture is showing the sheep is just clinging to the edge of a cliff and the shepherd's reaching over to grab one just before he falls but typically speaking when a sheep gets lost there's no drama the dumb thing just keeps on going and it never really realizes the danger it's in but the shepherd he goes out and he's so the shepherd poor shepherd who has to go out and find the sheep there's no logic to which way the sheep will go could have gone anywhere. And if you're going to go looking for it, you've got to look all over the place because you don't know where the dumb thing would go. could go to the left or the right or front or back. And then after it's gone to the right, way, right for a ways. It might go to the left or back. You're picking up a pretty big task here when you're trying to go find some sheep because there's no way to predict. And he goes and he looks and, and he finds it. And he's rejoicing as he brings it back. He's not kicking the thing all the way back. He's glad to find the sheep. Puts it on his shoulders. Doesn't even drive it back or lead it back. He carries it back. I mean, this guy is ecstatic. That he has found his sheep. And he's so thrilled at being able to find his sheep that he calls his friends and neighbors and says, Hey, let's rejoice. Let's, let's have a quick little party here for the sheep that was lost. Jesus says, you get that? That's God's response to a sinner who repents. There will be joy, more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents than 99 just persons who need no repentance. You may have 99 people that keep the law in Jerusalem to a T. And God is like, eh, You have one tax collector, and he says, I'm a sinner, God have mercy on me, and all heaven is filled with rejoicing. That's what it's like. I mean, do do, you get that, boys? That's why I eat with tax collectors and sinners because they've repented, and it's unbelievable. Come and eat with me. Or, he says, what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, Silver coins, they don't have a mind of their own. They don't go off wandering. They but they do have a way of getting lost, coins do. Either they get bumped and they drop and fall and so forth. And so as she's going, trying to find this coin, as she's sweeping out every crack, she has a light with her. And the purpose of the light is that coins, especially silver coins, they're, they're shiny. You shine a light, the light will be reflected back. And you, you're busy sweeping along, all of a sudden a gleam catches your eye and you look and <laughs> there it is. And she is hyper-enthusiastic, excited about finding this coin. And again, like the shepherd, she calls all her friends and they all rejoice. Now Jesus says something a little bit different here. He doesn't say, the previous one he said, there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Here he says there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Well, you know what that means then. Let's say you're all angels. And there's rejoicing in your presence. That means who's doing the rejoicing? God. In heaven you've got angels and you've got God, and He's rejoicing in the presence of the angels. Like he himself is thrilled at a sinner repentance. So this parable is interesting because it's a you know, light it corresponds with truth as God as the truth is proclaimed uh, it is like light that shines in a dark place. And we know that the Word of God is the truth. And it's like, and Jesus came preaching the Word of God, and it's like light that shines in a dark place. So if you've got this light as you're looking for the lost sinner, and what happens is that there's a twinkle that comes back to you. A, a bit of light reflected back. A little truth reflected back. A, what, you, what you've got is the Word of God being preached saying... You are hopeless in your sin. You are corrupt in your sin. You are full of guilt. And when a person says, it's true, I am full of guilt. I am full of sin. I am corrupted. It's like a bit of the truth of God that was shining on me is now being expressed back to God. And when God sees that humble and contrite expression, confession, it's a sinner that's repented. He rejoices. He rejoices over one sinner that repents so if you're thinking about trying to get into the kingdom of God and Jesus says strive to do it what he's trying to tell these guys is like look you have been striving to build yourself up in your status in Jerusalem and trying to impress God with your own righteousness it ain't working he's not impressed it will not protect you from his judgment it's You need to strive to hear the word of God and to recognize that it applies to you, that you are the sinner, that you are the one in danger, that you are the one with a, a faulty uh, uh, security. You need to... And it's... It would be hard for them to see themselves as corrupt sinners, but it, that was what the truth was all mankind is corrupted in sin and when they find that they have nothing to hold to rest upon nothing to hold themselves upon nothing to no security then they are in the place to find the the great and wonderful salvation of god now i wish we had time to go into the next parable, because it's such a contrast to these other parables. Because these first two parables, they talk about the, uh, the person who loses the thing, the shepherd or the woman, searching, looking, trying to find the lost thing. This next parable talks about, from the perspective of the thing that was lost, in the re- realization that the son comes to, and his getting up and leaving and trying and going back, and yet the hopeless position that he finds himself in because he can't reinstate himself as a son, he's blown it. He can't even sneak back onto his father's estate and, and grab the garb of a sermon, servant and pretend to be a servant. He can't do that. He's outside. But he gets up, and he begins to head back, and the father, when he sees him, reinstates him, not as a servant, but puts him in the position of a son and rejoices over him. And so there's a little bit different perspective. It's not, the father didn't go out trying to find out, where did my son go? Looking, looking, searching, hunting, and then finally find him in a pig pen and bring him out of the pig pen. Yes, God is looking for his sinners. But he's looking for a response from the sinners, for sinners who come to their senses and realize that they are sinners. That is necessary. But we don't have time for that, so we won't be able to get into it. Right? You're just trying to get off the hook. (laughs) Which is okay, because you've got this parable, this next parable. And then in chapter 16, uh, chapter 16 begins with, he also said to his disciples, which means that the two parables are linked, and they're both relatively long, so it takes some time to go through them. We can't just look at one and not the other. so. So we... <laughs> <laughs> I <it's> still fresh. <laughs> I've got bring those in, in it. Yeah, I don't know. It just gets weird after that, but it's okay. It's good. Our Father, we do come before you, and we do thank you for the. I don't know if attitude is the right word, but as you came to, uh, or as your son came to us, that uh, his willingness to receive sinners and the desire to see sinners repent and the rejoicing when you see sinners repent. Just thank you for your mercy and your goodness towards us for this great blessing, the feast that we can begin even now to partake in, the feast of the Lord Jesus. Thank you. In his name, amen.